Thank you for tuning in to this 15th episode of the Old Code Podcast. I'm your host, The Professor. Today we're talking about nobility again. And I do apologize, I'm going to be referencing some notes throughout this just to make sure that I get my statistics correct. But the reason why I'm bringing up nobility again, this is going to be a little bit of an odd Monday episode because it's going to be both a societal critique as well as an exhortation slash encouragement. I want you to self-evaluate after we talk in this episode. But today we're talking about the distinction between a peasant class and a nobility. A theory as to how we got into the mess that we're dealing with today. Today we're talking about the history of the Democratic Republic, which is America. Now, for backstory, I'll be referencing... Uh, goodness. I'll, ref I'll mention his name in the show notes, but it was written by... Or it was a, a book written by the name of Amusing Ourselves to Death. So, the author of the book, Neil Postman, that's his name, Neil Postman, author of the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, makes the claim that the early American settlers were predominantly literate individuals. He makes the claim that amongst men in early Massachusetts and Connecticut, there was an 89% and a 95% literacy rate, respectively. Even amongst women, he says that there was the potential that this literacy rate ran as high as 62% in the 17th century. Uh, meanwhile, he makes the argument, or he makes the claim that the literacy rate ran no greater than roughly 40% in England at that time. And so his argument is that those who were coming over to America from England first of all, were predominantly Puritan and uh, Protestant, which meant that they had a higher likelihood of actually interacting and reading with the Bible. They had a very strong emphasis on reading the Bible, and you had to be able to read in order to read the Bible, since that is a strong Protestant emphasis. Now, why am I bringing this up? He goes on later on in the book to discuss how this strong emphasis created a atmosphere of intellectual and of intellect and debate essentially he talks about how the debates amongst abraham lincoln and other politicians in the 17th 18th and 19th century were often off the cuff uh, and they could be anywhere between two and four hours where these individuals would be debating point by point and they would be, they wouldn't be drawing off of notes. They would be able to go and retire once their opponent had made a point, but then they would return with their own counter arguments. And they would not be, like I said, they wouldn't be going off of notes. So you have an odd amount of those who would be considered higher educated, even amongst 17th, 18th, 19th century standards in early America. However, I would argue that with the large swath of individuals of Italian, Irish, uh, Mexican, pretty much 
there was a there was a vast immigration in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and I am not in any sense or stretch of the imagination pinning any issues upon immigration. Do not hear me when I talk. What I am, however, talking about is you had for the first perhaps 200 years of American history, a large collection of individuals who were very keenly aware of a virtue ethic as derived from scripture. Now we can talk another time about issues of slavery and how that very much complicates that virtue and that same virtue ethic. Um, however, that's not the point of what I'm talking about today. With the large collection of immigrants coming over from Europe, these were more these weren't necessarily people who were going to set up a new world and therefore they would have a high literacy rate. These were oftentimes individuals who were looking for better opportunities than were present in the old world. Oftentimes they were fleeing from political issues. They were fleeing from bad work environments, all of the above. But what you can see, since there was a disproportionately higher number of individuals with a literacy rate in the early immigration, and then it seems that there is a disproportionately lower academic rate in the kind of second, third wave of immigrants coming to America later on. One could theoretically argue that this was a collection of people who were fleeing tyrants. They were fleeing bad kings, they were fleeing bad governors, all of the above. And here's the crux of my theory, and that is this was effectively a polished form of a peasant class coming into America. This is not in any way to speak poorly of them. This was, all I mean by that is this was a class and collection of people who were used to being ruled. They were used to people telling them what to do. They did not exist in a context where they did not have, or where they had, they did not exist in a context where they did not have someone who was constantly telling them what to do. Whether it was a lord, or a count, or a local governor, they always had someone who was telling them what to do. Now many... But this is them escaping an oppressive regime. They were escaping some sort of oppressive regime, and in that, there is an ethic, there's a virtue to that. Escaping from slavery, essentially. However, the point that I would like to drive home with this is that when they left their oppressive regime, they did not step into a society that had any sort of overarching virtue ethic to it, since it was, in fact, a melting pot. It was a melting pot. Not only was it a melting pot, it didn't have any sort of authoritative of what these people ought to do. It was a world of pure potentiality. No one had to become anything. 
No one had to do anything. They were free to do or to become whatever they desired to be. And there's there, there's a bit of beauty to that. There's a bit of a beautiful truth to this where instead of being doomed to being peasants for the rest of their lives or being part of a particular working class, they were free to climb up the ladder as quickly as they possibly were able to. However, and I'll say that often because in this episode because there's a whole lot of howevers and buts. In this new radicalized system where they were capable of becoming anybody and indeed anything that they wanted to be, they were also given the opportunity not only to do whatever they wanted to be, but to have a voice. And not only to have a voice, to have a say in what they were doing. So you have a peasant class who is not used to having a voice. You have a peasant class who is not used to having a say. Because again, you would have a noble peasant, uh, peasant distinction, essentially. You had the genteel, and then you had the peasants. Uh, I'm oversimplifying but you basically had those who did have a say and those who did not have a say. You have a class of individuals who are not used to having the ability to not only have a voice, but also to have a say in what goes on. And that is what we refer to as, a, as the vote. Or in a town hall meeting, somebody doesn't like something, they're able to say it if you don't like a particular leader you have the ability to vote them into office or out of office. The tension that arises between these two is the fact that they were not given any sort of pedagogy or... I'll, I'll simplify that. Uh, they weren't taught how to govern themselves. There was no transitionary period where they went from oppressive regime where they were being told exactly what to do to absolute freedom and you can even see this in the way that america has done its economics you can see that over the course of 100 years the past 100 years or so we've had to instate multiple economic sanctions and stipulations to say no you cannot do absolutely whatever you want to do the free market doesn't always work like that because if you allow people to do whatever they want to do chances are they're not going to do something virtuous so the crux of my argument is this the first wave of these immigrants typically imported a traditional either Judeo or a Christian ethic of some kind. And it's taken roughly the past three to five generations for that ethic to wear off. In the 1940s to the 1960s, it was absolutely ridiculous for anybody to not be a Christian. That was just the standard mode of existence. You then had certain revivals and awakenings take place over the course of the 60s through 80s. You had the hippie movement and the sexual revolution between the 70s and 80s. Throughout this time, 
it almost appears that the freedoms were increasing while the accountability was decreasing. What I mean by that is slowly over time, the overarching cultural ethics were eroded further and further and further. All the while, in academia, objective ethics were even more so being eroded. The idea of objective good was being eroded. So, this is a, a very short summary of my theory on why we're at today, or why we are here where we are at today. My theory is this, and I would like to present it to you. We are in a position today where people feel free to do absolutely what they want to do because we have told them, even let's say my generation of millennials, told them from their youth, you can be anything that you want to be. Uh, we have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, needs where self-actualization is the very top of the list. But we never taught them, we never taught people what they ought to become. We've only told them that they can become what they want to become. We've never given an overarching ethic of who a person ought to be in the grand scale of society. So, what you have is a peasant class who was never taught that they ought to become something. The result is effectively a generation of tyrants. And this is evidenced by the fact that we live in the age of opinion, and that is a tyrannical age. We live in the age of the tyranny of the oppressed. We live in the age of the tyranny of the now. We live in multiple tyrannies, but ultimately the tyranny that I'm talking about is people's complete lack of ability to govern themselves. And so I present to you a paradigm. You either govern yourself, which is to rule with wisdom and virtue, or you are a tyrant over yourself which means you have no accountability to anybody, even to yourself, and you are ultimately a slave to yourself. So how do you distinguish yourself? How do you distinguish yourself from simply being a peasant who has complete autonomy? You know, reference back to the previous episode on nobility and excellence, and one of the outlying qualities of nobility was always the understanding of responsibility. And, uh, I believe I, yeah, in my rights and responsibilities episode, I, I effectively outlined this. But right, responsibility, and privilege always seem to be integrally tied to one another. So in typical class-based societies, those with the greatest privileges always held the greatest responsibilities. 
You can even see that in the initial formation of who had the opportunity and the obligation to vote in America. People always hark on the fact that it was white male individuals who were the only ones allowed to vote. But the emphasis was actually, it was typically found on the land owning. You had to be a white male landowner in order to be able to vote. And I, I am, I'm effectively plagiarizing somebody right now. I don't recall who it is, but the emphasis that this fellow drew was in order to vote, you had to have a stake in your country. You had to own land in order to actually be able to vote. And so that is a responsibility that people bore. Fast forward to the 1920s and 30s with the institution of the draft. The argument for being able to vote was integrally and intimately tied with the ability for one to be drafted. And so if you wanted to be able to vote, you had the obligation of being willing to go to war. And this was therefore a privilege being able to vote. If you wanted to be able to vote, you had to be willing to fight for your country. And now we have effectively removed all sort of right or any sort of responsibility to the right which is present to vote. So, circling back, how do you distinguish yourself? First of all, how are you how are you governing yourself? Are you someone who is subject to every whim and desire that you have, or are you governing yourself and your resources well? Did you take a wife and have a family because you wanted comfort and you wanted ease in your life? Or did you recognize that you ought to take a family because it is a good thing to do? Do you lead in your family well because you want to be in control, because you want power? Or do you lead in your family well because you recognize the responsibility that you bear to them? Do you have or want a good paying job because you want to accumulate power and money and wealth? Or do you have a decent paying job because you want to contribute something? Because you want to care for those who are under your care, under your stead? Do you exercise your ability to make virtuous decisions do you are you a, are you lazy are you a sloth are you a, gorging yourself on sweets at every opportunity that you can are you working hard are you being diligent do you want to make a name for yourself or do you want to fashion an appropriate legacy to hand down to your family, to your sons and to your daughters? Really, I think that that's one of the big things that separates the peasant versus the nobility. Peasant is perfectly content thinking about tomorrow 
and the nobility was always concerned with next decade because they needed to make sure that their people were taken care of. You making war on the evil and the sin in your own heart and in your own life the way a king made war on the enemies at their gates. You solving disputes in your family as a good judge would. Or are you a coward and you're solving disputes simply because you cannot stand any sort of tension in your midst? How are you governing your life? Are you living as a peasant and therefore living as a tyrant? Or are you living like a king or a nobleman? How are you carrying on your legacy? I hope that this episode spurs you on to some sort of action. And whether that is a positive action where you say, I need to do I need to do something. I need to do something meaningful. I need to do something proper because I ought to be doing something more. Or I hope that this spurs you on to negative action and saying, I need to stop all of this foolishness that I'm doing. I am not governing my life well. I am not being a good king. I am not being a good noble. How are you living your life? I think that's all I have for you today. Please let me know what you think of this episode. Share it with your friends. I hope that this... I hope that this episode finds you well. And I do hope that this episode made sense. It was a little bit more of a broad topic, but I am always grateful for the opportunity that I have to talk to you guys. I hope you are well. Again, this has been The Professor. If you like it, share it with your friends, share it on Facebook or Instagram. But if at all possible, text it to somebody, share it in conversation. And most of all, if I'm going to leave you with anything, discern how you are caring for those who are... It's not a subject, and that's not putting them under subjection to you. That is putting them with all due regard and all due respect to them. Because that's what a noble does. They look for the good and to the good for their people. I'll catch you next time.